Well, we could turn back to the prophet Isaiah. Our focus this evening will be the fourth and fifth verse. Fury is not in me. Who would set briars and thorns against me in battle? I would go through them. I would burn them together. Let him take hold of my strength, that he may make peace with me, and he shall make peace with me. Let's just pray once more. Father, we now come to uh, your word, and we pray that that's what it would be to us, Lord. Not the reflections and the musings of a man, but the truth as it is in Jesus Christ. Lord, it's, it's a trembling thing to speak the word of God. For we stumble in many ways with our tongues. And so we ask, Lord, that you would sanctify the preacher's tongue tonight and make it a useful tongue for the blessing and edification of your people. Amen. Well, a while back, I preached a number of sermons from this precious chapter concerning God's dealings with us in affliction. And though this was words spoken primarily to Israel at the time, and namely the vineyard, which is God's people, we are to understand this as a promise that is yes and amen in Jesus Christ. In Isaiah chapter 5, the vineyard metaphor is, is used of Israel very literally. In Isaiah chapter 5, verse 1, we read, Now let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved regarding his beloved. And my well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. He dug it up and cleared out its stones and planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in its midst and also made a winepress in it. So why is, why is he doing all of this? Well, he expected it to bring forth good grapes. But it brought forth wild grapes. Verse 4, what more could have been done to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why then, when I expected it to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? And now, please, let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, and it shall be burned, and break down its wall, and it shall be trampled. I will lay it waste. It shall not be pruned or dug, but there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain on it, for the vineyard of the hosts, so the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. So there in chapter 5, this vineyard is literally referred to as the people of God, the old covenant people of God. But of course, um, in chapter 27, that same vineyard is spoken of in more positive terms. The Lord keeping this vineyard, the Lord providing for this vineyard in verse 3, the Lord uh, lavishing his grace on this vineyard, watering it every moment. And then this statement that fury is not in me, I have no wrath to my vineyard. So in chapter 5, the image is there of judgments and of casting them aside because of the thorns and the thistles that have been allowed to develop. But here the image is of restoration and, and healing and recovery. And we can take this metaphor of a vineyard and apply it to the church because we are very clear from the New Testament that if you are of faith, if you have faith, we are the seed of Abraham. That's what it says in Galatians that we have been grafted in, that we are the true Israel because we are the people of faith. Now, I'm not saying there that the church replaces Israel, called replacement theology, it's an accusation that I would get for saying what I'm saying tonight. No, it is the fulfilment of Israel. There was only ever a true Israel, those who had faith, and that is still the case. But it now consists of Jew and Gentile. And so these promises are for us. 
Now, just a just whistle-stop tour, just to remind us of where we are. We've seen, firstly, the Lord's care in affliction. You see that in chapter 3. I, the Lord, keep my vineyard. He's, he's tending it there. He's, he's pruning it. He's, he's taking care of it, you know. And then you see the Lord's attentiveness in affliction. I water it every moment. Affliction, dry, barren seasons. The sun, the scorching sun, but I water it. I keep it alive. I don't let it die out. Uh, Point three we saw was the Lord's protection in affliction. Lest any hurt it, I keep it night and day. And then we saw the Lord's disposition to us in affliction. Fury is not in me or I have no wrath. And so we may be chastened, we may be afflicted, but it doesn't come from a heart of wrath. It comes from a heart of love. So they were precious truths. But I want us to look at verse four now. And firstly this evening see with me the Lord's purifying work in us the lord's purifying work in us the hebrew here is difficult and i'm not going to even attempt to give you a hebrew lesson because i'm not a hebrew expert and i would be i'd be arrogant to claim that i am and furthermore that's not what you need i've wrestled with it i've looked at the various commentators i've looked at i tried to look at the hebrew and figure a little bit of it out with a bit of assistance from the various tools that are available and translations go different ways but I think in view of the context, it's best read like this. Fury is not in me. In other words, I have no anger to my vineyard. I'm not going to remove it. I'm not going to clear it out as I've kind of spoken of in chapter 5. However, let me be clear. Should there be briars and thorns that come up against me in, in my vineyard, I will go through them and I will burn them together. And so... He is speaking of, I believe, the, the very real reality that even Israel restored still has what we might call internal enemies. There's still the possibility of thorns. There's still the possibility of briars, of wild flowers growing up in the vineyard. But the difference is, unlike Isaiah chapter 5 where it was judgment, here he's saying, I have no fury, I have no wrath, but let me be clear. When there is wild flowers, when there are thorns, when there are things allowed to develop in my vineyard, I'm not going to tolerate it. I'm going to purify my vineyard. I'm going to cleanse my vineyard. Now again, to bring New Testament light onto this passage, is that not true? We are a vineyard. We are the Lord's garden. He is tending us. We are his people. There's even a sense in which we can go from the macro, the level, to the micro level. Even our own hearts are like the Lord's vineyard. He tends us. We are, we are to be a dwelling place for God. We are corporately, as a church, the vineyard of the Lord. But we were made for God to be a temple of the Lord. And yet, is it not true that we still have to, in this life, though restored, though set free, we have to contend with the reality of what we might call the, 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 the forms of sin, Growing in the vineyard, Paul calls it the law of the mind, doesn't he? In Romans 7 verse 33, which is set on sin. And so, you know, this is the believer's tension. We have the fruits growing in the vineyard and it's wonderful. And God is at working and he's watering it and he's keeping it. And yet there are also thorns that grow on the same soil. This is the tension that we have the church you know there's lots of we're encouraged you know if we were to go around every single one of us if we knew each other long enough we could probably say here are some wonderful qualities about this person or about our pastor here are some things we don't like too much because the reality is we are in that reality of the dual nature we have two uh, works within us the law of sin 
but also the law of grace. Now, some of you are into your gardening, I think, and probably are more than I am. I'd like to be, but I don't have the time. Um, what do you have to do for fawns and thistles and weeds to grow in your garden? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. <laughs> you do nothing, they grow. I've got a couple of beds in our garden, and I'm already saying to, to Catherine, should we just tarmac down? Yeah? So it's just... Because, because we don't do much, we don't have the time to do much, and all we're getting is weeds. If a garden's not vigilantly maintained, the result is always thorns. What are thorns? Well, go back, if we were to turn back, we don't have to now, but if we were to turn back to Genesis, that's the curse. That was part of the curse, wasn't it? Our work shall bear thorns and thistles. It is the outcome of sin permeating in this world. Now the reality is, as we considered this morning, that we are to be vigilant and active in the Christian life. If we, if we get slack, if we get lazy, which we do sometimes, if we take the foot off the gas, if we just think, you know, well, I've, I've been a Christian a long time now, I know all there is to know, I've heard, I've heard all the sermons that there are to hear, I'm going to the extreme case, I don't think anyone here would think that, but we get that kind of spirit within us. Um, what happens is thorns and briars begin to, to begin to grow. And sadly, it's often the case that everyone sees it but us. These are, these, are, these are symbols here of decay and evil arising within the vineyard. Now, the Lord says, fury is not in me. But he is saying, let it be clear, when things arise within my churches, within my people, within their hearts that would dishonour my name, I will go through them altogether and I will burn the fawns and the briars. Now, what is the reason for this vivid language? It is because he is zealous to see his glory among his people. You know, the, let's face it, the Chelsea Flower Show and all of that. I've never been. I hear it's great for those that go. Um, so, sorry if you've been to the Chelsea Flower Show and you've had this great big thing you grow. I'm not just trying to insult you, but a lot of the case, it's look how look what I've done, right? It, the, 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 the flowers or the plant or whatever is there to exalt whom? The gardener. And they get an award for being the best gardener of the year or whatever it is. Now, in, in one sense, it's okay for a person's work to be, to be recognised. But you see, it's perfectly okay for the Lord to seek glory in his people. We are his handiwork. And so you can understand that when thorns and briars develop in our lives, in our hearts, and in the churches, among his old covenant people, Israel, the Lord, by definition, because he's seeking his glory, he must do something about it, and he will, because it dishonours his name. Um, I was speaking to a family member not that long ago who said to me, I, I find unbelieving men to be more faithful and caring than the believing, so-called believing men I've met. Now, I was just thinking at the time, well, you, you've been in a certain kind of church. You, you, you haven't met the believing men that I know. But, but her experience was real. And, and, and that dishonours the name of the Lord, doesn't it? Doesn't the Lord say, be holy, for I am holy? Our Lord does not cuddle sin. He has no wrath towards us, but he does have a zero-tolerance policy when there is sin. Now, how does the Lord purify his vineyard? 
It's not the answer we like. Trials. Trials. In this you greatly rejoice, though now, for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. That the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire. There's that burning fire. Burning up. Burning up the dross. Burning up the thorns and the briars. May be found to praise, honour and glory at the revelation of Christ. Now I think all of us could hound on our heart testify of the truth of this reality. Maybe we've had times in our life when we've been beset with covetousness and our heart has been set much on earthly things. And then there's a great uh, affliction. Perhaps something's taken away from us or an investment, it fails. And we see how, how, how passing and how temporary the things of this world are. And we realise, why did I ever put so much hold and so much investment into this? Maybe we were seeking too much comfort and ease in this life. And so the Lord brings an illness or something into your life that prevents you from having that as your idol. Or maybe some of us got very secure where we were living and we were laying down roots. This is it. This is where I'm staying. And the Lord brought an affliction that caused us to have to move. And we had to learn the lesson. Here we have no abiding city. We are just pilgrims passing through. Um, you see this in various places. Think of at the church level, Acts chapter 5, that famous judgment that fell on Ananias and Sapphira so early on in the church. And, and the issue wasn't that they had, if you know the story, it, it, it wasn't that they had to give a certain amount to the Lord. It was that they had promised to give a certain amount and they didn't give that whole amount. And so Peter says, why is it Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And they, struck, they, were, they were struck down and died. And what was the result? Great fear came upon all the church. You can imagine many of them saying to one another, be careful what you promise. <laughs> be careful what you, you, you oblige yourself to do. You let your yeses be yeses and your noes be noes. But it wasn't just a church, all who heard these things. So it had an impact on the outside. This God is holy and he really does deal with sin in, in a very strong way. And you, and you can imagine, this was a fawn and a briar developing in the early church. Only two, three chapters after the great convert 3,000 added to the church. And you can imagine if this corruption, this deceit had been tolerated by the Lord. It would have only bred more sin and more sin and could have led to the to the ultimate um, this breaking up of the work that God was doing. Another example that comes to mind is the, God, the Lord's judgment at communion, concerning communion in 1 Corinthians 11. I think, I think this is so often overlooked and not taken seriously enough. 1 Corinthians 11, Verse 28, 29. Let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. And it's this next verse. For because this, for this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep, died. Now, I love the fact that it's, I translate you sleep there because they're believers, they've gone to be with the Lord. 
In one sense, it's a comforting thought. They were chastised, but they're still with the Lord. But the Lord took them out. He wasn't going to allow this sinful attitude and this mockery of his ordinance to persist in the church. And so some were sick, some were weak, and some had even died. But what does it say next in that verse? Look at verse 32 about why he's doing this. When we are judged, when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. Do you see that? That's the comfort in this. The Lord is chastening me. The Lord is dealing with me in this way in order that I would not be condemned with the world. You see, sometimes we look at the world and we see them just prospering and flourishing and, and, and they seem to not have as many problems as believers have. I've got to say, having spent time in the world and spent time with believers, I'm not denying that, that unbelievers do sometimes go through horrible things. You've only got to turn the news on, some tra- tragic things. But as an average, in terms of the average unbelievers, so often I speak to believers and I think, I, I, the problems I have with their children, maybe unbelievers don't talk, but it does sometimes seem that unbelievers go through a serious amount of affliction. And that seemed to be what David was describing in the Psalms, that the prosperity of the wicked and, and Psalm 73. But actually, the, Lord doesn't, the Lord's not afflicting them because he doesn't love them in terms of they're not his people. And he's not, he's not, he's not tending their garden. He's not, he's not concerned. He's concerned about us. And so he's dealing with us in his grace and in his love. God is working in us, not to make us comfortable, but to conform us to his son. Do you tremble when the uh, final benediction is read in Hebrews? You know, we, these benedictions, I sometimes like to mix up and, and pick some that aren't the ones you're used to hearing, maybe in the middle of the text, just to keep you on your toes. Because we get used to these, these classic benedictions, number six, may the Lord make his face shine upon you, and the grace, we say the grace. Um, and this one in Hebrews, and we just say it, and it, it, it becomes like a mantra that we've just heard. But really think about what this is saying in Hebrews thirteen twenty. May the God of peace, who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. If he's going to have to work in me what is well-pleasing in in his sight, he's also going to have to deal with a lot that isn't. (laughs) To just say that and mean it, is to invite this chastening hand of the Lord in our lives. You ever read that verse in, in 1 Peter, where it says, um, 1 Peter four seventeen, and wondered what it means. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. That is the reason why believers so often have afflictions and, and chastenings and trials, and yet many of the unbelievers are delayed until the ultimate judgment. Because ultimately, the Lord is judging us, as Corinthians said, that we might not be judged with the rest of the world. Our judgment starts now. The Lord is dealing with what grieves him now in order that in that day we wouldn't be condemned. But the unbelievers are just allowed, in many cases, to... So it's actually a manifestation of wrath. You think of that in Romans. He gave them over. He gave them up. But when we're being chastened, we can rejoice because he's not giving us over. He's not giving us up. He is working in us what is pleasing in his sight.
Now, I'm not saying this makes trials pleasant or encouraging or afflictions easy. What they were going through, was, even though they were hearing this ahead of time, it wasn't going to change how difficult it was. But it does mean that our trials have purpose, doesn't it? They are sanctified. They are useful in a way that they were not before I knew Christ. And what a promise this was for them. Whatever they were going through, God was working in them, not only to keep them delivered from outside enemies, but inside enemies. I, I take this as a great encouragement, to be honest, because I want, as a pastor, maybe, maybe it's just something I think about being a pastor, so I'm not expecting you to think about this, but one of my greatest fears is we have a unity as a church now which I rejoice in. A real unity, a sense of common purpose, a sense of common conviction. It's just tremendous. I've not seen it often in many places and I praise the Lord for that. And yet we're praying we want the church to grow. Now I don't want us to become a kind of church that so treasures unity that we get nervous about growth and we sort of get have too high expectations because we don't want what we have to be threatened. That would be unhealthy. But I'm also conscious that as people come in, that unity will be threatened. And challenged and stressed. But here is a comfort for us. It is the Lord alone who, who deals with the fawns and the briars. We can only do what we can to, to ensure that we believe someone's converted and to hear their testimony and to evaluate with there's fruit in their life. Um, but after that, we can, we can leave the matter with the Lord. Ananias and Sapphira, we can trust him to take care of us. You know, the church will go through hard times. We will encounter problems. And we will be sifted. And sometimes people will be removed. But nothing will ever happen that ultimately is not for the good of his church. Even if we don't see it at the time. We must not measure what God is doing by problems. But trust whatever the problems God is working for his people's good. So that's the first point then. The Lord's purifying work in us. The second point is the Lord's availability. This is the um, counteracting comfort, if you like, the, 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 the alternative antidote. Now, when I was a kid, you know, you, you'd have one medicine that would taste horrible, wouldn't you? And then you'd have the, the other one, the banana one, the, the antibiotics, which would taste nice. So we found out recently with the children that they don't seem to do this banana antibiotics anymore. Um, they don't know what they're missing out on. They just have horrible and horrible... Um, here is a, a tasty, comforting piece of medicine. The Lord's availability. The, again, it's, it's, it is very difficult Hebrew here, hence the different translations. And I think, well, if scholars who are translating, who know their Hebrew very well, are translating in different ways, I, I do fear what, what hope has, has someone like me got. But I, I, I've come, I believe that the awe here is, is, is not helpful. He's now addressing his people as vineyard and saying... Let him take hold of my strength. Let them, let my people take hold of my strength. Let them make peace with me and he shall make peace with me. He's saying, as I deal with your thorns and briars, as I am cleansing my vineyard, as I am afflicting you, as I am chastening you, as I am doing whatever it takes to ensure that my vineyard produces good fruit, all I ask of you, my people, is just take hold of my strength. Take hold of my strength. You don't have to endure these things alone. In effect, he's saying to Israel in exile, even there I will help you. 
Now, this is clearer to me when you look at the overall context. We wouldn't have had chapter divisions in the original. Look at, back at chapter 20, 25 and verse 4. So we're told that the Lord has been a strength to the poor, a strength to the needy in his distress, a refuge from the storm, a shade from the heat. For the blast of the terrible one is as a storm against the wall. Look at verse 3 of chapter 27. 26, sorry. You will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you, because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for in Yah the Lord is everlasting strength. So this is an, this is an invitation. He's, he's made in chapter 25 and chapter 26, the Lord has declared the strength that is in God to his people as they go through whatever the Lord leads them into. You can trust me. There is strength available in me. Though you will be tossed to and fro, you will not, your faith will not fail. You will be upheld. You will be kept. And so in verse 5, now comes the invitation which says, lay hold of that strength. Take hold of that strength. My strength is sufficient for any storm. You know, we worry about the storms that may come. And the answer to that isn't the storms might not come. I mean, that can be helpful at one aspect. But actually, sometimes the storm that will come will be greater than the storm we imagined or feared would come. So really, we don't comfort ourselves by saying, well, um, it might not turn out as bad as you think. The real comfort is in whatever happens, the Lord will be there. The Lord is available. The Lord can be called upon. The Lord's omnipotent arm is greater than the storm. In chapter 41 of Isaiah, we read in verse 10, Fear not, I am with you. Be not dismayed. I, I am your God and will give you aid. I will strengthen you, help you. So this isn't, that isn't Isaiah 41, it's a hymn, isn't it? I will cause you to stand upheld by my righteous omnipotent hand. I had Isaiah next to it, but um, probably because it's inspired by Isaiah. Is it isn't Isaiah? Have you turned to it? Thank you. What a comfort and what a promise that is from God's word. See, secondly, under this then, so the Lord's available, we're to take hold of his strength. But secondly, submit yourself to his mighty hand. You see that in verse 5, 5b. So after the invitation to take hold of his strength, we are invited to make peace with God. That's a strange, a strange thing to say, isn't it? Let him take hold of my strength, that he may make Peace with me. That is often the greatest challenge for the Lord's people, isn't it? It's to simply come to a place where you can say, whatever the Lord ordains is right. And not just say that in a pious way whilst inside we are rebelling. But actually, to to actually be still, to make our peace. Who am I? I hate this, I'm not going to lie, but who am I to, to prescribe to God how he should deal with me? I'm making my peace with him. I'm going to lay down the arms. I'm going to submit myself to the yoke. I'm not going to quarrel with him. I'm not going to wrestle anymore. Contending with God won't help me. God is working all things together for my good. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. He is faithful and he will surely do it. It is a peace that comes from those 
who have decided to lay all their questions about all that's happened in their lives, all the heartache and pain, and lays them before the character of God. And just simply says, I'm not, I'm not, every time it rises up, you go, why? No, no, I don't need to know why. I don't need to argue. He is good. He is good. He is love. He loves me. He gave his son for me. It is a, it is a contentment to simply say, I will not charge God with any unrighteousness. This is what it is to humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, isn't it? It is a humility which just simply says, I don't know what's best. I don't know what's best. And this is not a fatalistic submission that says, oh, what can I do about it? I guess, you know, when life gives you lemons, we make lemonade. I just... Got to accept how rubbish things are. No, 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 no. This, this is a submission of faith. In some sense, we don't understand how God is being good to me in this absolute tragedy. But we can by faith say, he is being good to me, no, although I haven't got a clue how. He does care for me. The Apostle Paul had all sorts of... You so often refer to this text, isn't it? But the Apostle Paul had... Um, so many ideas about what he wanted to do and how he thought he should serve and what he needed to serve. And then he was given this fawn in the flesh, a messenger from Satan to buffet me. And again, we've become very familiar with these words, but what's going on there is Paul is... If he's got to do all... You think if you're Paul, your, your schedule is pretty intense, isn't it? The amount of work that he's been called to. And the average sort of physician would be saying to him, right, make sure you eat a balanced diet, make sure you get sufficient sleep, um, make sure you exercise. You know, he'd be prescribed, you know, in his mind, if I'm to be fit and useful, then you can imagine in his mind what would have seemed the best way for God to deal with him. And yet the Lord sovereignly permitted Satan to buffet him. He had a form in his flesh. He was... He was desperate. He was at his wit's end. Three times he pleaded that it might be removed from him. This is in, what he's saying is, is this affliction is incompatible with fruitfulness. How on earth can God expect me to go on whilst I have this? And so often it's like that in our lives. We cannot even understand how any good can come from this that we're going through. And yet... The Lord said to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, Paul. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Now, it seems from Paul's biographical description of this event and this situation, as he's looking back, that he actually began to understand what we're considering tonight. Because we know that God goes through the vineyard and he consumes the briars and the thorns. And what Paul later on came to realise was the briar and the fawn in his own heart was his own pride. Lest I became conceited, he said, this fawn was given to me. I didn't realise it at the time, but if I'd had my full strength, I would have got carried away and Saul of Tarsus would have manifested himself through Paul the Apostle. And that would have not blessed the Lord's people. So the Lord struck me down. A messenger from Satan to harass me that brought me low in order that I might depend on his grace. The wisdom of God, all oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom of God. All oh, his ways are past searching out. 
He knows us when we don't even know ourselves. You know, many of us that may have experienced great losses in life, relationship losses, um, financial losses, we maybe have no idea how harmful those things could have been to our soul had the Lord not brought them into our lives. My grace is sufficient, Paul. Job is the other chap, isn't it, that probably had these kind of experiences. Well, not probably. I, I, I'm not going to die at the stake for this, but I, I, I think that Job, probably the person second to Jesus Christ, has suffered more than anyone. It's the most depressing book to read in many ways, isn't it? What he went through, let's be honest. But in Job chapter 38 and 40, you see this great dialogue between Job and the Lord. And what God does with Job is he doesn't answer his questions. He doesn't give him, he doesn't solve the riddle. He doesn't tell him why his sons and children died. He doesn't tell him why he lost everything. But what he tells him is who he is. 38 verse 4, where were you? When I laid the foundations of the earth. Tell me if you have understanding. Chapter 39 verse 26. Just cherry picking a few here. Could, could read the whole chapters couldn't you? Does the hawk fly by your wisdom Joe? You see that hawk or the eagle. And how elegant it is. And how it, it flies. I designed that. And it spreads its wings towards the south. Does the eagle mount up at your command? Verse 2 of chapter 40, shall the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? He who rebukes God, let him answer it. What was Job's response? <laughs> and, you know, how many of us, have we, I mean, the point is, no pastor or no elder or no teacher or no Christian is, is, is God, so we don't have to, <laughs> to speak like God here. Um, but, but, you know, how many of us, we thought, this is a bit insensitive. I mean, what the chap's been through and the Lord is just sort of laying it on even heavier. What, what was the impact on, we, you know, you'd probably call that heavy shepherd, wouldn't you? Go, go easy on the chap. The chap's lost so much. And yet, what does Job then say? Behold, I am vile. And I read that and I think to myself, Job, no, part of me feels so, no, part of me feels like, Job, you had a reason to ask those questions. I mean, look what you went through. But no, no, Job, Job now says, I'm vile. What shall I answer you? And then we read him doing what Isaiah 26 says we are to do. He makes his peace with God. He says, I, have lay, I lay my hand over my mouth. Once I have spoken, but I will not answer. Yes, twice, but I will proceed no further. And then God goes on again. It's like the Lord, no, you, need, you still haven't got it yet, Job. But then chapter 42 Verse 3 to 6, Job then, God answers some of his questions. You asked, who is this who hides counsel without knowledge? So Job said this, answered the Lord, and he said, Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Listen, please, and let me speak. You said, I will question you and you shall answer me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. 
Therefore I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. This is what it is to make our peace with God. And in one sense I'm just relieved that whatever may befall me in my life henceforward and whatever has befallen me, it's a relief for me to think I don't have to work it out. We leave it with the Lord. The Lord knows. The Lord knows. It is enough for the Christian to know wherever he may guide me, no want shall turn me back. My shepherd is beside me and nothing can I lack. His wisdom ever wake, his sight is never dim. You know, sometimes we look back, things have happened in the past and we just wonder, could it have been done a better way? No. No. His sight is never dim. He did what he did because he decrees all things according to his, his, his infinite wisdom. He doesn't just know what is the best thing to do. He knows all the possible best things and he chooses the very best to do with our lives and with his church and with his people. The Lord hasn't missed something. Now, I, every, I haven't ever preached a sermon where I haven't got down from the pulpit and thought it was a horrible mess. And I haven't ever preached a sermon where I haven't gone home and think, I shouldn't have said that. I should have said that. Oh, I should have said that, not that way or this way. I'm always looking back and, and, and reworking things and thinking I could have done it differently. But the Lord doesn't miss anything. The Lord knows exactly what he's doing. He can't make a mistake. I can say by faith, I don't know how, and I don't say it's easy, and I, I, don't, I don't by any means pretend, some of you have been through worse things than me, I don't pretend to say this is something we can do in ourselves. But it is possible by faith because the word of God says it. Not necessarily because I've experienced it. Because the word of God tells us it is possible to have a peace which the world cannot give in this world. It's what Jesus says. Peace I give you. In this world you will have trouble. And that peace is basically, I believe this. He is God. And he is my God. I go to my father, he says. And I go to your Father. <laughs> now, we have to say to unbelieving people, don't we? Because there's a sense in which I'm probably stretching the the uh, the metaphor, the vineyard. But there's a, there's a sense in which every man or woman was made for God to dwell in them. You know, we were made image bearers of God. God was meant to find fruit in our hearts, and the natural man or woman only bears thorns and thistles. And they will never know the Lord until they make their peace with God. And what is it to make peace with God? It is fundamentally to come to that place where you stop arguing with God. You know, I remember having a conversation in Eastbourne with someone. And this person was really going at me. About the unrighteousness of God in choosing some to salvation. Really hostile to this truth. And in the end I got to the point where maybe I spoke unrighteously. But I said to this, this, this individual, I said, Romans 9. Who are you, O oh man? You know, what makes you think you have the right to know why God does everything the way God does it? And what makes you think, O oh, fount of all wisdom, that, that, that God owes you an explanation? You see, the unbelieving... Unbelief is fundamentally putting ourselves on the throne and saying, I won't believe anything unless I 
I, in all my wisdom and knowledge, can understand this. Repentance is actually, at its very root, is basically saying, he is God. And actually, everything he says is right. If he says, I'm a sinner, and a desperately wicked sinner, and unworthy of, 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 of heaven, and deserving of eternal hell, it doesn't matter how that makes me feel, it must be true. And, 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 and I've had a glimpse of it now. If he says, I can't be saved, trusting in myself, then I make my peace with God. I say, you are just when you speak. And if you tell me I'm a sinner and I need a saviour, then I will, I, will, I will come to that saviour. You know, fundamentally, our nation is, if you like, again, I'm extending the metaphor, I'm being a little bit sort of spiritualising here, but we could say this land, we call it, a, a ple- as English people, we, it's pleasant and, and green land, you know, we have this sort of nostalgia for our country, it's been this land of democracy, the land, the God, the land has been blessed with the book, you travel in all the villages and towns and the chapels or the churches have the highest place, and we can cast our minds back in our imagination or we read books and we think of the gospel being preached in that place. And there is a sense that though we were not, if you like, England wasn't Israel and we weren't a more, more loved nation than any other nation, there's a sense in which God had blessed this land and this land had been very fruitful. And yet thorns and thistles have arisen in this land of ours, briars, and the Lord is now passing through this land and dealing with it in judgment. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. And this is what we need to preach in the open air. We need to apply it personally. We need to apply it broadly and say, make peace with God. This is the call to men and women. Peace is available through Jesus Christ. He, has, he can deal with your sin problem. We can't change the nation and we can't change individuals, but we can ask people, have you submitted to the Lord? God has provided us salvation. Salvation belongeth unto the Lord. Well, may we all rejoice in the peace we have with Christ. May we all lay hold of that peace we have with Christ. And God helping us, and God blessing us, and God giving us opportunities, would we encourage others to make peace with God through the only mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.